You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to be joined by Reverend Jim Dunn, who was ordained as, as, as a chaplain at the Upaya Zen Centre and who serves as a volunteer chaplain at the Penitentiary of New Mexico and at Christus St. Vincent's Hospital in Santa Fe. Jim, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. So you've apparently been investigating and practicing meditation for over 20 years, and, and it really fascinates me. I'm, I'm wondering, let's start by asking, what's, what's the need for meditation as far as you're concerned? Uh, the need for meditation is learning how to control your mind, to work with your mind. One of my favorite book titles on how to meditate by Sakimempam Rupeshe is Turning the Mind into an Ally. I am sure you, as most people, have had thoughts that just kind of get them out of control. They get all wrapped up in things. They bend off on things. And by developing a meditation practice, you can learn how to be more responsive to the stuff that happens in the world instead of reacting. It gives you a little more intelligence. It kind of creates some space to deal with the challenges, the problems that come up. What does that mean to be responsive but not reactive? Oh, a very simplistic example would be uh, somebody slaps you and you want to punch them. A responsive thing would to think, oh, wait a minute, that might not be the best thing to do in this situation. You have some space to kind of think about that, to open up, to respond more appropriately. Is it possible after that point to still think, actually, no, my best response is to do that back? I suppose it is. <laughs> I would hope you'd make another choice, but sometimes that might be the answer. So so meditation is a, a personal practice as opposed to a communal practice? It is done both ways. Uh, I practice at home quite a bit, and then I also am part of a sangha where I go and sit and meditate with other people. There's a little different support when you're meditating in a group, and, uh, and it somehow seems to support you in a way that's different than meditating at home. But it, and then there's also retreats where you are to spend time with a number of people. The ones I do, the Vipassana retreats, you spend your time in silence meditating six to eight hours a day. What, what's the outcome of that for you? Is it calmness, peacefulness? What? What can you do with that? Uh, one of my little quips since I started meditating is I've just noticed people are nicer. So are people nicer to you or do you just see a difference? Do you see people differently? Partly I see different pe see people differently. Partly I think people see me differently. You know, you're not putting out the kind of negative stuff. You know, that I'm in a rush, don't bother me kind of thing. You have a little more time to be present with people, or you just kind of do that more. So you get a better response. I, how often do you spend a day meditating then? Because I love the idea of being able to spend six to eight hours a day meditating, but, but life. So how, how do, what's the balance? Well, ideally, on a perfect day, I would meditate for about 20 minutes, maybe in the morning and again in the evening. Most days, I meditate for about 10 minutes. 
but that's, you know, not the best practice. <laughs> and, and so what differentiates between meditation and prayer? They overlap a lot. There's not a bright line between them. Prayer is usually has some sort of asking for something, supplicating, you know, some deity, uh, you know, oh, Lord, why don't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Is <laughs> I'm not sure that's a, that's a perfect version of, of but prayer, but yes. It is kind of a prayer. Uh, in Buddhism, we also have prayers, but the prayers are more aspirational, working with the mind. Uh, may I be well, happy, and peaceful. May I be free from harm and danger. May, you know, you kind of move on. This is a loving kindness practice. So who are you talking to when you say, may I be free of these things? Mainly to yourself. You're really kind of working with your mind and you move on from yourself to, you know, your family, your loved ones, to your friends, your acquaintances, uh, to people you don't know but you deal with, and then to the difficult people in your life, and then to all beings. Right, interesting. In, in Judaism... Um, uh, the the word prayer lehit palel to pray is to judge oneself. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of that reflexive activity. And and for me in my tradition, um, th- yes, sometimes prayer is supplication, but not supplication in the sense of you know trying to wish you know for a Mercedes Benz, a- asking for magic, mm-hmm. um, but much more reflecting on if I'm saying I need health. What am I saying about myself that I'm making that request now? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also prayers, I think, of praise, of, of wonder, of being able to sit and say, it's extraordinary. We have a prayer in the Jewish tradition at the very beginning of the morning service where we thank, we're thankful for our, the vessels and openings in our bodies because if they didn't work, then what would we have? You know, we wouldn't be able to stand in prayer. Mm-hmm. So is meditation for you also that sense of wonder as well? It certainly can be, and some parts of it are. One of my teachers, Lama Kathy Wesley back in Columbus, uh, suggested if you are out and you see a beautiful thing, a beautiful sunset, you just have this aspiration. May all beings everywhere enjoy this kind of beauty. Sunsets are easy, though, aren't they? Yes. I mean, religiously, they're easy. Yes, they're easy. Uh, and they always leave you in the dark, don't they? <laughs> Eventually, yes. Um, what, what about... I mean, you mentioned difficult people. Um, what is their what is their place in meditation when when they enter? I guess to see them as really, you know, suffering beings like yourself. That I don't think anybody really sets out to be difficult or to be an enemy, but everybody wants to be happy. They want to avoid suffering, and some ways are more skillful about going about that. Some of the less skillful ways would impinge upon what you want. And so having that kind of insight that maybe this isn't about me, maybe these people really are having their own challenges suffering. You know, when I do work in prison, I haven't in a while, but you see a lot of people there that really are acting out of pain. Mm -hmm. You know, they've done horrid things, but it comes out of pain. It's not because they're bad intrinsically. So um, I, I guess the obvious follow-on question from that is, are, are there intrinsically bad people or is everything coming from pain? Well, one of the teachings of Buddhism that I really like called Buddha Nature, uh, Choykam Trumpa Rinpoche called it basic goodness. 
And basically the idea there is we all have this basic goodness, this basic purity, and uh, it's always with us. Everyone has it. But just like the sun shines every day, but we get clouds. We can't see the sun. Things, life, events, emotions, negative action, things that happen to us kind of cloud the sky, and we lose touch with that. And some people lose a lot of touch with that. Drugs, alcohol are a great way to obscure your awareness of that basic goodness. But that's one of the things that sustains me in my prison work especially, and also in my hospital chaplaincy, is that everybody has these good qualities, these basic goodness, if you can just connect with it. So sticking with that metaphor and trying to push it to see how far we can go with it, if, uh, if a person's goodness can be temporarily eclipsed by clouds, we know that clouds will eventually just be blown away or will, you know, dissipate. But is it possible for a person to be so caught in negative behavior that their goodness doesn't come out again? Or is the perspective that this is all transitory and can be removed? It can be removed. Some people, it may not be removed in any time soon, depending on how wrapped up they are in it. It's fascinating for me because, um, because this leads to a sense, uh, a, a question, I guess, about self-awareness. Um, how much are we aware of ourselves and our own actions? And, and is the answer for you to that, that meditation helps us find that? Is there any sense of, my concern is that meditation is very personal. So I can convince myself of anything, especially if I'm in a room for 20 minutes by myself, I can come out and say, wow, I'm a wonderful human being. And now I'm at peace and calm with everyone. And then those around me can turn around and say, really, you just got angry again. So how do I how do I reflect on myself and, and get rid of that negativity with with only myself as the audience and the in- interrogator almost? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's something of a challenge as you develop a meditation practice. You do become more aware, more aware of things beyond you. It's not entirely the self thing. I know years ago I appraised real estate and would spend a lot of time in my office all by myself on my computer. And I thought, gee, I'm a wonderful person, great Buddhist. And then I'd have to go out and get in my car hey. and that change. <laughs> but, uh, no, but as you de- your practice deepens, and part of the whole idea of practice is seeing clearly. You know, the causes of suffering are generally listed as craving and hatred and delusion, ignorance, bewilderment. And it's learning to see the world more accurately, more clearly. Uh, We tend to bring a whole lot to our experience to the world that isn't necessarily there. Mm -hmm. I want to pick up when you say we see the world more accurately. Is there there an objective, accurate view of the world um, that does, um, does your tradition claim to 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 know this is how the world works or is it a sense of relative perspective we believe that Uh, as you develop a meditation practice you learn just to see things more clearly i'm not sure we can state that the world is this way and not that way but our experience of the world becomes a little more accurate a little more appropriate and that allows us to respond more appropriately one of the zen teachers going way back, was asked, what's the purpose of the Dharma, of Buddhism? His answer was an appropriate response. 
And so this is a response to life yeah. and to everything that happens in life. And who determines what's appropriate, though? Uh, I think the outcome. You know, if, you, if it leads to happiness, well-being, human flourishing, then... But life can be very often in the gray, can't it? That, that, one, that happiness for one person might be suffering for another. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it the sense of, is it numerical? Um, you know, the more this action is good if most people are affected positively, even if some people are affected negatively, is, is, it, a, a, is it based on numbers? No. No, it's much more subtle than that and much more integrated or fluid. I'm not quite sure how to answer that kind of question. Uh, because how do, we, how do we work out what is good? If we say it's what leads to happiness, you know, me driving in my car, uh, I often use this as an example, might lead to my happiness in getting to different places, but it will kill animals on the road or, or you know, moths or whatever. It will pollute and so on. So how do I define happiness? This is an imperfect world, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the notion of suffering. Dukkha is the Pali word, and it's better translated as unsatisfactoriness or lack that we never quite get it right. That is the nature of this world. That you know, we all will have dealing with some sort of suffering, and there's no perfect outcome. There's no way around avoiding those kinds of issues. So interesting. So we have to live with this as we as we move through our lives. We're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, um, which I I tried to look up and tried to to learn about. So we're uh, listening to Soul Searching on KSFR. Uh, My guest at the moment is Reverend Jim Dunn. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance. And I'm here with a colleague from the Interfaith Alliance, Reverend Jim Dunn. Um, welcome again. Um, we're really ha- having, for me, an extraordinary conversation um, about meditation and, and, and goodness and, and who determines happiness. And, and I really wanted to, um, I saw that your main practice now is this Vipass- uh, Vipassana Buddhism. Um, can you describe what that is compared with other forms of Buddhism? Well, Vipassana Buddhism came out of the Theravada tradition, the tradition of the elders. That's what Theravada means, Theravada is an elder, of southern India, Sri Lanka, parts of Southeast Asia. And it was brought to this country by, I guess, people that had been in the Peace Corps largely, Joseph Goldstein, uh, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield were some of the major instigators of bringing it here. Mm-hmm. And what they tried to do with Vipassana was take a lot of the chanting, the religious practices out, and bring what's really helpful and good for people, the meditation practices, the ethical practices. And I think a lot of us are trying to ease some of the religious things back in. In what way? What does that mean? Uh, it's trying to be more... It's hard to define spiritual, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's trying to be a little less clinical, psycho- psychological, and a little richer in my mind. At least that's the way I look at it, and that's the way I like to think about it. So is that does that include a sense of otherness in terms of spirituality? Um, and by otherness, I mean any sense of divinity that is outside ourselves as opposed to within ourselves? Or is it still nonetheless quite androcentric, quite, quite focused on, on us as individuals and our spirituality within. Well, Buddhism is non-theistic. All the traditions are non-theistic. Uh, 
There is no supreme creator being. But it is not so individualistic or self-based. It really is about creating love and compassion. Uh, the Four Noble Truths you know, begin with there is suffering or the unsatisfactoriness and then the causes, the craving, the bewilderment or ignorance, the hatred, hostility, pushing away, mm -hmm. and then the cessation and then the uh, Eightfold Path. You know, it's sort of like going to the doctor. I have this suffering. Ah, we know what it is. We know what it causes it. We can stop it. Here's the prescription, the Eightfold Path. And part of that begins with the idea of, first of all, right knowledge, which is basically waking up to the Dharma, understanding it. And usually the way that begins with people that show up at a Buddhist center mm -hmm. is that they've run into suffering. They've run into that first noble truth, and they want some way out of it. Let me ask, before we explore the Four Noble Truths, just because uh, when you mentioned there's no creator God, and for a, a growing number of people in faith communities, I, I think that is a, a theology which they're moving towards. But then how do you answer those who do believe that there is a creator God? And when they ask you, where did everything come from? What, what do you normally answer? The Buddha taught that everything arises from causes and conditions. And so we have this idea of beginningless time. This has been going on since a time before we can conceive. So if time is beginningless, does that mean that the universe is, is repeating uh, that, that, or that this is just something beyond our comprehension entirely? I, there's some questions the Buddha wouldn't answer because they don't lead to liberation, peace, happiness. That's one of them. Really? That's interesting. <laughs> So that, see, it's interesting for me because um, when we, uh, in the Jewish tradition, the, the Bible starts with the letter Bet, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the rabbis ask, why not the letter Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet? And the letter Bet is shaped. Um, it has a sort of openness on the left-hand side, but it's closed above, below, and to the right. And, um, and because we read Hebrew right to left, it sort of points its way into the text, Bereshit bara Elohim, um, the very opening words of Genesis. And so the rabbis say, why start with a letter Bet, not a letter Aleph? And they say, because it's not for us to ask what came before, what is above or what is below, mm -hmm. which in some sense I find totally liberating because because the focus of life is the here and now. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that's totally avoiding the question, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, there are a lot of resonances between Judaism and Buddhism. One of my favorite books, if you haven't read it, is The Jew and the Lotus. I'm aware of that. By Roger Kamenetz. And a fascinating story, I thought, of his delegation of that the Dalai Lama asked to come to see him in to India because he, was, he wanted to ask the experts on how to live in exile. And right. So, but there are a lot of other things in there that talk about the, some of the resonance. But... Can't, can you, I mean, I as a, as a reformed Jew and an astrophysicist, I'm able to say, look, the universe started this way. The, the, you know, we, we know the scientific account. We know what happened here. Is that, what's the role of science in Buddhism? Oh, it's very much a part of it. Uh, yeah, we started with the Big Bang, according to astrophysicists. What happened before that? Right, and that's the question, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Um, Stephen Hawking would say because of, of the relationship between time and matter, there was no before that, mm -hmm. um, which I guess in some sense is also what we're saying possibly, yeah. that, that actually what counts is the here and now. Yeah. So let me ask, uh, we've got uh, a number of minutes left. Let's, let's look at the, these four noble truths. 
which which really struck me. You, you mentioned some of them, but it's, it starts by saying that birth is suffering, or, or as you put before, um, you know, it, it's not the ideal state. But what does that mean for us? That birth is suffering. Isn't birth the most liberating, extraordinary thing in the universe? Well, it certainly is extraordinary and in some ways liberating. But, you know, being born implies, you know, it's, I guess, one of the little jokes is it's the leading cause of death. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's, we have to put up with this whole mess for however many years we are given. And in some ways, there's a lot of joy and great things to be had. But there's also things that are difficult, challenging, illness, growing old, I'm beginning to notice more and more. <laughs> and uh, Sure, but if we, if we hold that life starts with suffering and, and basically starts us on a journey of suffering, then what we're doing is we're putting joy aside, aren't we? And we're saying, well, this is just something that might balance it. Why not look the other way and say life is joy and sometimes there's suffering? What's, what's the reason for the focus there? Because the suffering really is unavoidable. And to find the joy, you have to learn to let go, to release, to be fully present. Uh, we all are kind of born craving. Babies cry. They want to be fed. You know, all those little things. And a lot of times it looks like babies are really suffering just the first few days. They begin life crying, actually. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, but they don't know what's going on. They're confused. Right. So is that baby then a metaphor for the Buddhist perspective on life that we're, you know, the baby is just craving what its immediate needs? Don't we transcend that, though, as we grow up, that we have the opportunity to do that? Yes, we do. And that is the purpose of the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, is to learn to transcend that, to learn to let go. And some people never quite get beyond the basic ideas. You know, in some, it's kind of the ordinary thing. If I only had this, I'd be happy. Right. And, you know, we all know after a certain number of years, I hope, that getting that will not make you happy. Right. It gives you the instantaneous joy. Yeah, right. But then it's never fulfilled a, a, that right. craving fully. Yeah, no, it's more. the whole idea of impermanence. You get a new car, it's lovely, you're great. A few years later, it looks a little faded, a little out of date. Maybe it's got a dent in it. It's no longer the joy it was that you felt at the beginning. So learning to be aware of that, of letting go of those things, you can still enjoy the new car. There's no reason why you can't. And there's no reason why you can't enjoy lots of things. But it's just the need. I have to have more. I, I guess as I think about the baby, it has a, physio a physical need, a physiological need. For, you know, it needs immediate things. And in some sense, we're always going to need immediate things, aren't we? We're going to need food. We're going to need drink. We're always going to crave, aren't we? That's the nature of a body. Is that, is that really suffering? Or is that the body just saying, I need a top-up so that we can keep going? In some ways, that is the nature of suffering, is that that is the human condition, that no matter what we do, we'll never get it entirely right. You know, we can make it better. We will have moments where things are good. But uh, it's always going to be coming back to this thing. Things don't last. Impermanence is one of the big things we talk about in Buddhism, coming to terms with impermanence, that things don't last. And that cuts both ways. It's right. things that are unpleasant that don't last and things that are pleasant that don't last. So permanence is the ideal or just the awareness of impermanence? The awareness of impermanence. 
and and so could that not be a potential for joy though um and i'm i, I guess i'm pushing on this question because um I guess in my tradition, um, when we have a when we have food in front of us, we have an opportunity to elevate it to say blessings and to to celebrate. Um, in fact, you, you know, the um, the old Jewish quip about most Jewish festivals being they try to beat us. They, they try to kill us. We beat them. Let's eat. Why, but why do we eat? Because it's not just food and gathering and community, but it's also an opportunity to praise and to to uh, to be amazed at the wonder of you know when i have an apple in my hand and i and i thank god bore peri haets who creates the fruit of the tree mm-hmm. i'm i'm taking something which would just exist on a tree normally which falls to the ground but instead i say no i'm going to elevate this i make this a, a moment of spiritual opportunity mm-hmm. so so i in some sense i guess i'm celebrating the impermanence of things as opposed to being aware of it and, and seeing it as suffering. And I, I'm wondering how you see the difference there. I'm not sure there really is a difference. Okay, go on. Uh, one of my little favorite poems, William Blake, he who binds to himself a joy can kills a winged life. He who, dis- who, ah, who kisses a winged joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. It's kind of, you know, just, yes, this is wonderful. I love this apple, and I am very appreciative of it, and I will enjoy it now. It's being fully present to that. But at the same time, that awareness that in a few hours' time I'm, I'm going to be hungry again? Well, you might be. You might just, you know, not worry about that at the moment, but... Uh, right. You know, Buddhism could use a little better vocabulary. <laughs> it's, well, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because yeah. what we're talking about, and this is why we explore these concepts in this show, um, is try to to help ourselves and our listeners to try to explore our own vocabulary in mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean for us when we sit down to do anything? Is it, re- is it real in, it, in and of itself? Is it a precursor to something? You know, what is, what is it leading to? I guess for me, as we start to wrap up, I'm, I'm wondering about the, the cessation of suffering. Um, how is that brought about? I, mean, there's a, I saw something about the Eightfold Path. Do you want to talk briefly on that? Well, the Eightfold Path is, yeah, it's easier if I talk about it in three parts because we don't have a whole lot of time. Indeed. Uh, and that is morality, ethical behavior, uh, wisdom, and uh, doing right actions, meditation. You know, those are the three pieces of it that it breaks down to. And the ethics is a big part of it. The whole teaching of Buddhism can be summarized in, uh, I think, three lines from the Dhammapada. Do good, do no evil, do good, purify the mind. Say that again. Do no evil, do good, purify the mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we purify the mind both through meditation and by following the precepts, the ethics. It's, it's fascinating. And what a wonderful way to summarize for us. I really appreciate uh, our conversation this evening. I really do. Um, so I want to thank you, um, Reverend Jim Dunn, for your uh, really profound answers to, to some of our questions and to our exploration of, of suffering in particular and, and, um, and being with ourselves, I think. Um, I've really enjoyed this. I hope you might return another time. I'd be glad to. Um, thank it's you. been an honor. Thank you. So um, you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe with my guest, Reverend Jim Dunn. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>